From the Seas by Samantha Hunt I devise my own test. I fill the tub on the third floor. I get in and put my head under the water, blowing bubbles. The test asks, do you miss your father when it rains? Do you stay in this God-forsaken town because you think he is still here? Do you only like men who can match your father drink for drink? Don't you know drinkers only love drinking? Can you breathe underwater? Are you really a mermaid? Or does it just feel that way in the awkward body of a teenage girl? I breathe water into my lungs. I wait for my test results. Welcome to the Art Wife Book Club. I'm your host, Hannah Harley. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the inaugural episode of the Art Wife Book Club. We are so happy that you're here. And by we, I mean me because I'm the only one in this recording. So we are starting with a book called The Seas by Samantha Hunt. And you may have heard this in our trailer episode and read this book already. You may not have read it yet. Either way is fine. You're welcome here. However, if you haven't yet read this book and you intend to, do take this as a spoiler warning because we'll be talking about the book from cover to cover and all parts of the plot. So when I had the inkling that I wanted to start this podcast, immediately I knew that I would want to start with this book. This book just lit me up like a Christmas tree when I read it the first time. I think it was a year ago or so. It was the book that um, reignited my love of reading fiction. I had been reading almost exclusively nonfiction for several years before that, but I picked this one up because I felt like I was seeing it in bookstores all the time for a period there. Like it was the book that was face out on the shelf or in the window display and the cover art was really compelling but I also saw Maggie Nelson's name on the cover and her book The Argonauts is one of my favorites so I picked it up and if you are a Los Culturistas listener like I am you know that one of their recent guests did I don't think so honey book blurbs but uh, I'm here to say that I am the person on whom book blurbs actually work. So I love this book. There's so much to talk about within it, but it's also kind of a hard book to start with because it is just so laden with meaning. I mean, every sentence is dripping. So it's dense. There's a lot to get into. So let's get into it. Before we start with the plot, let's just open with some holistic notes on structure, the way this book is set up. I, the way that I conceive of this type of structure is the shattered narrative. And I know that, you know, a lot of writing professionals have a very specific definition of what the shattered narrative is. And my definition may or may not 
align with that, but this is how I think of it. So it's like when you have a ceramic, a piece of pottery, and say you drop that ceramic on hard wood and it shatters into a bunch of different pieces that are kind of mixed around. They probably, some flew off over here, some got rearranged in the breaking process and they're separate, but they're all made of the same material. And that's how I think of this book as well. There are separate sections, little snippets, but they're all made of the same material. And this is different from the braided narrative, even though they look similar on the page. They have a lot of visual similarities in that they are often, you know, fairly relatively short sections that are broken up. They might have section names. They might not but there's a fair amount of white space in this particular form. But the shattered narrative to my mind is actually different than the braided narrative because in the braided form, there you usually the writer usually brings in at least one external thread whose relationship to the primary narrative isn't immediately apparent. It becomes apparent usually later on. On the other hand, the shattered form, in my estimation, is entirely concerned with the primary narrative. Every section is made out of the same material, just like that broken ceramic that's separated into several little pieces that all come from the same whole. So now that we have that representative image for the structure of this book, let's get into it. The map, a prologue, our first section. And I'm gonna spend a fair amount of time here because the way this opens is extremely interesting. So we begin with logistics. Our narrator is describing for us where geographically this story is taking place. So they're about as far north as you can get. They're in a small isolated town, but also a troubled town as illustrated by the stats we're given on alcohol consumption. So she tells us that they have the highest rate of alcoholism in the country and that this piece of trivia or information that is repeated over and over and over. So I found this opening really compelling because if I hadn't yet read this book and someone came to me and said, do you think it would be a good idea to begin a novel by basically describing a map and sharing statistics? I would say, uh, no, obviously not. And I'd say this because, well, one, logistics are boring as hell, and two, they do little to differentiate a story from the millions of other stories out there competing for our attention. They don't emotionally engage us. They're not particularly inviting. And yet, I found this beginning to be extremely effective. So I dug a little deeper into why that might be. And what I found was that my general quarrel with starting a piece with logistics is actually exactly the same as the reason I found it effective here. And that is this. Logistics make readers turn off their brains, right? Like you probably experienced this a little bit. Reading logistics in literature makes you sort of black out. Like, okay, let me conserve my energy until we get to the meat. But here in this book, that blacking out is actually the point. 
So the narrator is making sure we know from the very first paragraph how trapped she feels and how trapped she is and how much would need to be overcome in order for anyone in this town to leave. And we see that repeated again more than once as the story unfolds. So here are the lines. She says, things that are unfamiliar are a long way off and there is no direct route to these things. Rather, it's a street to a street to a road across a causeway to a road across a bridge to a road to another road before you reach the highway. Like what? That is just a description of a map and it's not inherently interesting, but it certainly makes a point. So here in these first paragraphs, we're also being made to understand her environment, which signals its importance in this story. And it's a point that will be reiterated and revisited many, many times as we progress. And that physical location is important because it's also standing in for a lot of other themes throughout the book, including things like isolation, small-mindedness, lack of opportunity, lack of imagination, all of which become apparent as the story unfolds. But that's not all that happens in this prologue. Oh no. We do get that turn without warning into scene a little later on. And it starts with that line, we're getting out of here, I say, let's go. Whew, not to be dramatic, but this felt pretty euphoric to me when I read it because it was so unexpected and unexplained, which indicated to me that the writer was trusting me to come along without hand-holding. And that just happens to be one of my favorite qualities in a writer. I think it indicates respect for the reader. So the events that this narrator describes for us in this scene are that she and this character, Jude, are hastily leaving town. So she gets in this truck, she drives, and he, according to her reporting, is in the passenger seat beside her. And there's a real rushed, almost desperate feeling to their exit. And she also describes a great wall of water building behind them, about to overtake them. So initially she's trying to outrun the water, but then she relents and it's getting too close. She can't outrun it anymore. So she shares this major piece of news and it's news to both Jude and to us as the readers, which is that she is a mermaid. But this, interestingly, isn't actually the big reveal here. The big reveal is that we find out that Jude is not actually next to her and probably wasn't the whole time. So that's where we land at the end of this prologue. And I've read this book twice. And the first time I read it, I don't remember having any inkling that Jude wasn't physically there until we learn for certain that he's not there. But nevertheless, despite that, the writer does very effectively establish a sense of unease. So there's this sense that something's not right with Jude before we even learn that he's not there at all. And this is our first introduction to the fact that reality is going to play a very unpredictable role in this story and that we won't be able to rely on our usual understandings of what's possible and what's not. Then we move past the prologue and from there, 
into the daily life of this character. So over the course of several sections, we learn that she lives in this small, overly full, cramped, cluttered house with her mom and her grandfather. We learn that her mother grew up as the only hearing person on an island of deaf people, including her parents. And we also see that the narrator's grandfather, who is her father's father, worked as a typesetter, and he's now currently at work creating his own dictionary. So what this means is that conversations about the meanings or the definitions of things are commonplace in their household. And of course, we also see our narrator with Jude, a man who's older than her, but we don't know by how much at this point. Jude is also an alcoholic, like a number of people in this town, and a veteran who served in Iraq. And very quickly and very intensely, we're made to understand how consumed our narrator is with her love for slash obsession with Jude. So in the beginning here, in a matter of pages, all the central tensions of our story are established, including the narrator's belief that she's a mermaid and the unease that that creates in her family. Their responses kind of oscillate between exasperation, avoidance, and something like fear. I mean, all of the, the previous reactions I listed are you know manifestations of their fear. Another central tension is her missing father and the weight of that in her family. Then of course the tension of Jude including his drinking, his PTSD, their age gap, and the narrator's unrequited or at the very least unconsummated love for him. And I say that because we do come to understand over these pages that Jude does very much love the narrator, but he maintains an unyielding romantic distance from her for the length of almost this entire book, which serves as utter torture for the narrator. And he attributes this distance to her age. And we do actually learn a little bit later on that she is of age, she's 19 years old, and that's kind of his reasoning that he gives, but I think that it's fair to understand that his distance has to do with his belief that he's protecting her from himself. And then finally, another tension that's established is the way that Jude and the narrator's father are completely collapsed. So let's look at a few instances in which the narrator tells us this. So this is a scene from the first time our narrator ever sees Jude. She's standing in the water in the ocean, and this man is, is swimming near the shore. And she says, there he is, I thought, and meant my father because I had been waiting for him to come back. And then a couple of pages later, after her and Jude have interacted, she says, so I saw he was not my father, but barely. That but barely is doing a lot of work there. So these early sections would be really useful if you yourself are a new writer to study as a means of understanding how to open a book and establish tensions without being didactic. So if you look at these beginning sections with that lens in mind, see if you can jot down some of the things that 
you notice how how are emotions involved how are we made to feel things or believe things or understand things without the writer often directly telling us what to believe or understand or feel and another thing that started to emerge in these early pages and maybe the first third of the book was the way that concepts and images repeat over and over. So in a well-constructed book, I always think that repetition equals significance. So as a reader, if I see something repeated, I always kind of subconsciously flag it. And this particular book is almost obsessive about its themes. It circles around them constantly, repeating them like mantras or almost incantations. So what are some of those themes? Well, uh, the first and most obvious is, of course, water, the sea, the ocean, the bathtub. So that's it, folks. That's my contribution to this discussion. I hope you've enjoyed this pod. Just kidding. Of course, water is a primary theme. It's very obvious. But there are many, many others. And another one is, you know, language, words, definitions, etymology, what things mean, and importantly, how they perhaps could come to mean something else. Another theme is the North and being from the North, how far North they are. We hear that repeatedly. And kind of linked to that is this sense of not being from here or not belonging or being different from everybody else, which we hear a lot from the narrator, but also we hear from her mother, we hear it from Jude later on. Another repeated theme is this image of someone or something rolling on top of you. So we get that with that extra big, large book page. The narrator's father in a story the mother tells, King Neptune, which we'll get into shortly, and then of course the huge waves that continue to show up over the course of the book. Another central concept is alcohol and how much everybody drinks. We also read a lot about senses and the lack thereof, specifically sight and hearing. We read a lot about the act of waiting. And we read a lot about the mother-daughter relationship, kind of the lineage, the heritage there, and what things are like for women and girls in this particular culture, in this particular town. And for this narrator, all of those things are linked. All of those things are related to each other in very concrete ways. So I said we were going to look at King Neptune. And that brings us to the kingdom section. And this section for me was the quiet beginning of the escalation. So this is the first section where we see the explicit return of what might commonly be called magical realism, which we'll expand on a little bit. But first, what happens here is we're, we're now intimately aware with how profoundly the narrator longs for Jude. And here in this section, she comes up with a plan to make him jealous by going on a date with somebody else, someone that she knows in the town. And it's a horrible encounter with a, a horrible person. 
Uh, she's on a date with him. They do sleep together. We don't know if she's losing her virginity or not, but the entire experience makes it very clear that this man is actively working to humiliate her and that he enjoys it. But we're also confronted in this section with Jude's patriarchal beliefs expressed in the way that he responds when he finds out. He's angry with her, despite the fact that we know that he's been sleeping with dozens of women. So he evidently feels some kind of ownership over her and her body, even though he hasn't made any kind of commitment to her. And later we learn that, you know, they're spending time together again because he has forgiven her. So confronted with these two very gendered and very negative experiences, the narrator's direct response to that is to have this encounter with King Neptune. And in this encounter, she's on the beach. She's interacting with a person, a, a being that she calls King Neptune. She is trying to help push him back into the water. And in the meantime, they're having some exchanges in which he expresses thoughts on being a mermaid that don't sit well with her. And over the course of her pushing him and pushing him back into the ocean, she then tells us that what she finds beneath her hands that she's been pushing against is a great big rock, a huge boulder. So here's what I want to say about the idea of magical realism in this book. I've read this book twice now, and the first time I read it, I think those are the words that I might have used to describe it. Fable, magical realism, myth, etc. But here on this second read, I actually came to feel that those labels were imprecise. And I started to experience this book actually as hyper-realistic. And what I mean by that is that at every step, I felt that the narrator was simply and factually describing her real experience for us. And those elements that felt magical or surreal or unreal were actually the result of her extremely effective and well-honed coping methods, coping mechanisms. So I think normally this narrator might be called unreliable, but I wouldn't say that. On the contrary, I felt that she was frequently very honest with us, the readers, about what these symbols and images and experiences meant for her. I felt that she was simply accurately reporting for us her exact experience. And one example of that is here when she's remembering an exchange she had with her father and she says, so I don't think he's dead. I think he is in the sea swimming and that is kinder than imagining his boots filling up with water and then his lungs. And then she says something similar again about 30 pages later. She says, sometimes if I'm soaking in the tub or while I'm trying to sleep, I picture my father telling me about being a mermaid. I imagine things he might say to me if he were still around. Things like, you might be living on dry land, but you're still subject to our laws, and he'd mean the ocean's laws. 
I would be relieved to hear this because it would give me comfort. I'd rather be subject to the ocean's laws than the laws that apply to young girls trying to become women here on dry land. And this coping is again illustrated in the kingdom section and the way that she managed her experience through this interaction with King Neptune. It reminded me of when I was younger, when I was 19, 20, and I had lost my mom the year before, and I had these insanity fantasies. Uh, that's the best way to put it. And of course, I mean, you know, insanity, not in any clinical sense necessarily, but more in the cinematic kind of sense, like the way we might think of, you know, Sunset Boulevard. And I would fantasize about going crazy so that I wouldn't have to keep trudging through my life in the pain that I was in so that instead I could, you know, sit at home under a blanket and say things like, oh yeah, my mother's just in the next room making tea or, oh yeah, my mom's just out on an errand. She'll be home soon. She'll be so happy that you came to visit. And of course, I never did go all the way to that place, but this was my fantasy that I held onto, this thing that made me feel like, okay, if I could just get there, then I wouldn't have to feel this pain anymore. And I think the narrator might be doing this as well. And I also think that she has a fairly strong awareness of this, or at least she has a nebulous understanding combined with these occasional flashes of insight. And one place where this really rang true was when she's describing the Carney girl. And here's what she says. When you are young, living in the North, sadness can make you feel like you have something to do. Sadness can be like a political cause almost, or a religion or a drug habit. It's a lot of work to stay sad. I think of the Carney girl's teardrops, and I can't believe that is her purpose, but still, I want a purpose so badly that I'm envious even of that sad and ugly purpose she has. I suspect that she wants her boyfriend to stay in prison for a long time so that every year she can add another drop until they reach below the collar of her shirt and everyone who sees her will say, my, there's a sad girl. She's like an animal with her foot caught in a trap. In the wave of pain that rushes over her, she looks to the sky and she is braced by the color blue there. For a moment, she imagines she can escape this ugly town and her imprisoned boyfriend. So she tries to use a knife on her bone above her ankle to free herself from the trap. Sadly, the knives they give out as amusement park prizes here don't have the blade for any real cutting. And anyway, she doesn't have the money to move away. So this section, I mean, my goodness, she's ostensibly talking about this other girl. And yet every sentiment rings true for her own life as well. Okay, so from here, let's move forward to the section titled Ost of, meaning lost love without any L's. And this section is interesting because it's where things begin to escalate. 
This is when she sees her father in the attic, resulting in her injury and also the first of several interfaces with institutions that she has. But this section actually begins with an anecdote of closure. It's, it just happens to be closure for someone else's family. And I'm referring to the scene where the narrator, her mother, and her father are down on the beach scoping the debris. And the narrator finds a glove with a human hand in it. And she and her mother are, you know, extremely disquieted by this discovery, of course. And they're kind of running away. They run to the car, get in the car, slam the, the doors. But the narrator's father actually goes to this glove and this hand and he brings it back with them and the mother and the narrator are really kind of freaked out and they're wondering what he's doing and he says the hand has a ring on one of the fingers we should turn it in and see you know his family has probably been looking for him and this is really important I think from a craft perspective that we open this section with that scene and then we close the section with the scene of the narrator seeing her father for the first time so far in this book. And the reason I want to highlight this is to talk about proximity as a storytelling device. So proximity is something that's discussed maybe in braided forms most often, but it matters in all types of structures. And we can see that really clearly here. And we also see it in several other instances throughout this book. And what I mean by proximity is the choice on the, the part of the writer to put two seemingly separate or seemingly disparate events right next to each other and allow them to just exert influence on each other. So they're simply their nearness to each other is doing the work of an explanation. And there's kind of this emergent third quality that comes forward just simply from these two things having friction with one another. And so that's why proximity is such an important tool for writing a book or writing an essay or telling a story that doesn't feel ham-fisted or didactic because we get to experience something rather than being told how to experience something. So back to the plot, it's toward the middle of the book around this, this part that this mermaid trope is beginning to really take shape and that's the idea that Jude either has to love and marry the narrator or die. And those are the only two possible outcomes here. And as this impossible conundrum continues to gain momentum over the following pages, our narrator then has an experience in the bathtub that she describes as an accident and that her family and others around her read as a suicide attempt. And when she wakes up, she's in an ambulance getting care from an EMT. And this marks, like I said, the first of several interfaces she'll have with institutions, people in power over her for the remainder of this book. 
So now, here we are at the section called War Among the Mayflies. Very important section. This is Jude's monologue. We get 15 pages of nearly uninterrupted dialogue from Jude, which of course is more than we've gotten from him in the rest of the book combined. So the reason for his openness here will become clearer later. But the interesting thing is that the narrator doesn't question or wonder about this sudden candor. And in fact, she never really responds to the content of his speech almost the whole time. She's having her own entirely separate experience regarding the puddles of water and his melting as she describes it. So Jude is, you know, really opening up to her. He's telling her about his time in the war and toward the end of his monologue, what he's communicating to her is that he basically feels dead inside or he feels already dead or like a shell of something that's not alive. And he's sharing with her the excruciating pain that he's in and the trauma that he's been through. But the narrator is oddly dismissive and in fact responds to him sarcastically even. And so here we have another indicator that what she feels for him is more obsession than love. And she's so busy trying to organize all the pieces and slot them into her narrative that she can't actually be present with this person that she's so consumed by. But they are both in this incredibly heightened emotional state, and they follow this conversation by at last sleeping together. And given her description, it's extremely consuming and transcendent. It's the fulfillment of what she's wanted for so long, what she's longed for. And they sleep next to one another that night at Jude's house, in Jude's bed, and when the narrator wakes up in the morning, Jude isn't in the bed with her. So she calls for him. She walks into the other rooms of the house and can't find him. But she sees an empty bottle of the whiskey that Jude had started the night before. It's now empty. And then she slips in a puddle of liquid in the living room and falls to the floor. And then, and then... We move into what is arguably one of the most beautiful and evocative and impeccably written sections of this book, certainly, but maybe um, also in the entire history of literature. I don't know. That's how I felt. So here we are. This section is called The Seas, but here it's spelled S-E-I-Z-E. -E. I mean, come on. I took no notes because it's so captivating. I was so in it. And there's so much beauty in the language. It would be almost tedious to address all of it. But this is where it all happens. The previous section and this one are undeniably the apex of the plot. So in short, we have a repeat of the scene that we got in the prologue with a little more at the beginning and a little more at the end. So the little more at the beginning is the narrator concluding that Jude has melted entirely away. And that's because the smell of the liquid that she slipped in is familiar. And then she tastes it and confirms that it is him. 
She drinks up every last bit of this liquid, licking it off the floor, she says, the way a cat or dog would. And when she's done, we get that familiar line, we're getting out of here, I say, let's go. So she's rushing to the truck, she's driving away, she's talking to Jude, and she's being chased by something blue that she interprets as the ocean coming to reclaim her or reclaim them. And she's talking to Jude, but then she looks over and sees that he's not in the seat beside her. And in these moments, while she's looking at the place where she thinks Jude should be, she crashes the car through a guardrail and she sails through the air before colliding with the ground off the side of the road. And even here, something is still approaching her and there's mixed imagery. It's water that looks like police officers. It's police officers that look like water. And then it is police officers and their guns are against her neck and they're arresting her for the murder of Jude Jones. So the narrator is taken to the station. She's interrogated. We learn that Jude's cause of death is drowning and she's held in prison. She spends time there. She talks to the walls while she's in there and they all, meaning her and the walls, conclude that her story is quote romantic. And after spending lots of time, we don't know exactly how much, but she waits for several pages in prison, she ends up getting out. And we have two parallel accounts for why this is happening. The narrator's account is that she sent a message to her father through the water from the sink in her cell, and he received the message and returned to land to free her. And the other account, relayed by her mother, is that the narrator was released because they found a note from Jude that indicated that he killed himself. And they're talking about this while they're in the car, about to drive away from the prison. And it's here that I think we get the most crystal clear line that indicates that the narrator's experiences and description of her life and description of her experiences are about coping. So this is the line about her brush with quote unquote sanity and her active choice against it. So here's the line. Jude killed himself. The possibility that this might be the truth swoops near my head like a bat at dusk. A bat that soon flies off in the other direction uninterested in me. So this made me unequivocal in my conviction that this is primarily a book about bearing the unbearable and how to do that. So from there, the narrator and her mother drive out to the ocean and they take their clothes off and they get in the water and they're sort of swimming, splashing around, diving under some waves and floating over others. And the waves are described as words, as definitions. So they're choosing which definitions they want to avoid and which ones they want to interact with. And they avoid weight, as in to stay in one place or remain inactive. And they swim directly through the wave carrying the word lady. And this is more or less where the book closes. And it does matter, I think, that the story ends with the narrator free 
both physically free from her prison cell and seemingly mentally free as well. One of the last pieces of dialogue is an exchange in which her mother says, I didn't know you could break definitions. And she responds, of course you can. So I'd mentioned, of course, that I've read this book twice. And what I think is really telling is that my memory after the first read was absolutely that the narrator had murdered Jude. I'd forgotten all about the suicide. I'd forgotten, frankly, all about all of the sections of our narrator in jail. I, my memory was that the book had ended after she was arrested. And the fact that my takeaway regarding the plot of this book was basically, oh yeah, the, the book about the crazy girl who killed that man, or in other words, the crazy girl who was that man's downfall. I mean, wow, that is a rich text. And I don't think it would surprise our narrator one iota. I think she would say, yeah, you and the rest of this small, unimaginative town, which is exactly what this book is about. One of the primary problems in this young woman's life, right, was the lack of imagination around her. And I thought a lot about these couple of lines toward the middle of the book. She says, those are the choices for women who live here. Dirty, domesticated, deaf, deformed, slithery, siren, psychotic, silent. And that's, I think, kind of the thesis statement of this book. And it didn't really land with me at first because now in 2023, the feminist reclaiming and retelling of various stories and various types of stories is so de rigueur that it hardly even registered with me. But I remembered then that this book was actually published in 2004, which uh, we were still very deep in manic pixie dream girl in you know the types of stories that would later need to be reclaimed and retold so for me i think this book's greatest triumph in my experience was the way that it caused me to re-examine that unimaginative takeaway that i left with the first time around which is no small thing and it was done extremely effectively now if i had to pick out one quarrel that I have with this book, and I do have one, it's that the prose was sometimes so smart that it veered a little bit into clever, like it was perhaps overly laden with meaning so that it became almost cutesy or I don't want to say gimmicky because that's more derogatory than I mean, but at least overdetermined. And one instance of this, or one example that I can point to, is the connection of hysteria with the senses. And we get that toward the very end of the book here, when the narrator and her mother are diving in and around waves. And she says, a small wave of hysteria passes. Hysteria, a psychiatric condition, anxiety, fits of laughing, crying, simulation of organic disorders such as deafness or blindness. And as we discussed earlier, the senses were revisited a lot in this book, particularly sight and hearing. And I sort of would have preferred 
um, to just let that live in the story rather than having it tied up so neatly there at the end. It was just a little too tidy. And I felt that in other places with the way the prose was so tight that it was almost a little bit constricting. So that's my one hesitation with the book. But in general, I mean, this is a podcast that believes in subjectivity. But if you didn't like this book, you're objectively wrong. (laughs) Just kidding. But it's a great one. I hope you enjoyed it. Our next book is called We the Animals by Justin Torres. And its corresponding episode will be released on Tuesday, September 5th. So buy it, borrow it, just don't steal it, and we will see you then. Thanks so much for joining. Thanks for joining the Artwife Book Club. This podcast is a project from Artwife, a digital, literary, and arts magazine, publishing essays, short stories, visual art, and video art. Explore the magazine at artwifemag.com. See you next time.